Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, guys. Glad to see you this morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church. And as Nathan just read, we're in the book of Luke, uh, walking through a series that is taking a look specifically at the um, content of Luke that is not found in any of the other Gospels. Um, we're calling this series The Extent of Grace because of how Luke's gospel shows the far reaches of the grace of God as Christ ministered to the least and the lowly and the broken and the sinners and told, as we've already seen and as we're going to see again today, parables that cut to the heart of those who uh, would limit God's grace to a particular type or group of people. Uh, Luke is very keenly aware of Christ's message that no one is outside of the reach of grace, no one at all. All right, so here we go. We're going to jump into this, uh, this parable, and um, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you've seen that Jesus weaves these parables very craftily. Um, Christ is a master storyteller, and in his storytelling, uh, he chooses the types of people, the categories of individuals that he puts into his stories. We need to remember this when Jesus tells parables. Jesus isn't uh, telling a, a true story. That's not what a parable is, okay? So Jesus isn't looking back in time and saying, there was this guy and there was that guy. Okay, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't saying there was this town and there was a judge and there was a woman and those things really happened. That's not what a parable is. A parable is Jesus creating the entire story from nothing. Okay, and when Jesus does this, he, uh, he significantly and intentionally chooses the types of people that he puts into these stories, right? A couple weeks ago, if you didn't listen to this sermon, I've been told that you should listen to it, the Good Samaritan sermon, I think it was our first one of this series, Jesus tells a story about a guy who gets robbed by people, and all of the religious people walk past the guy and don't help him, and then Jesus says a good Samaritan helps him, okay? The words good and Samaritan in a Jewish city would never go in the same sentence, right? Unless they were saying it is good to hurt a Samaritan. Like they would never put those words together. So Jesus intentionally tells a story about an enemy of the Jews and how he was good, right? It's very intentional. Jesus does this again and again and again. And so with this parable, we see Jesus choose two people from quite possibly the furthest extremes of the continuum of human existence to tell a jarring reality about the grace 
of God and the coming of the kingdom, okay? Jesus intentionally says, hey, I've got a story to tell you, and there's two guys in this story, a Pharisee and a tax collector, okay? Jesus very intentionally chooses these characters. You see, a tax collector in Jesus' day was not just simply an IRS agent, which would put him at the ire of most of us anyway, right? I mean, come on. Why would anyone choose the profession of working for the IRS unless they are some kind of a traitor? That's just insane. Who would decide, this is a good idea, I'm going to take taxes from people and make sure they pay all of the ones they're supposed to pay? That's a terrible job. I love you if you're a tax collector, but come on now. Let's move in somewhere else, right? Let's just follow Jesus towards health and grace. I'm just kidding. So even in our day, we would say a tax collector is a tough person to get along with, but in Jesus' day, even more so, and here's why. Jesus' people, the ones he was born among, okay, uh, were the Jewish people. They were those who lived in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns in uh, Judah. Uh, they were those who lived in Galilee and some of the other areas uh, of, uh, of uh, Israel, and these people were experiencing an occupational government reality, okay? Now, I know this would never, ever, ever happen, but imagine if suddenly we were under the rule of Canada, okay? Suddenly we had thrust upon us, <laughs> I'll watch my French, the governing uh, circumstances of a foreign empire and we're pushed into following their rulers um, and paying their taxes and advancing their concepts of uh, society and uh, choosing what is good and right according to their dictate. Okay, again, never gonna happen. But if that were so, and we found ourselves in the place where we had to unwillingly pay taxes to the great white neighbor to the north, a tax collector would be an American who suddenly fell upon what they saw as one of the most lucrative professions they could ever come to, and that would be to forcibly garner taxes for Canada from us, okay? That's what a tax collector in Jesus' day was. So even worse than that, even worse than it's just another kingdom or another empire, the Romans who had taken over and were ruling, uh, they had instituted and were following and were propagating a religion that was completely other than the religion of the Jews of Jesus' day, right? The Romans were pantheists, right? They named multiple gods. They had many temples. They had myriad of shrines, right? And in this reality, they smacked in the face of the, uh, the religion of the Jews who had one God and one temple and one Lord and one faith, right? And so it was a political enemy that was taking over them, and it was also a religious enemy that was taking over them. And a tax collector in Jesus' day was a Jew who said, I'm going to set up a booth, and I'm going to be really picky and take care to make sure all of my neighbors, 
all of the members of my synagogue, all of the people from my community and my city pay all of their taxes to Rome. And they were also notoriously known for taking more than what was due, right? This wasn't the age of the internet with fiscal transparency like we enjoy today, right? This was one man with one list separated from all the other people with lists who determined for himself what people owed. And so many of these tax collectors were rich. They were incredibly well off. The reason they were well off is because they skimmed off the top. They would report to Rome, yeah, I got you know, the stone ciphers bit, and I got the kirpies bit, and, I got... and then they were skimming off the top 5 and 10 and 12 and 25%, and were wealthy because of it, right? And so these people were the worst. To those listening to Jesus' story, this was a traitor. This was a corrupt and filthy individual. This was a person who was not just a political enemy, but also a religious enemy. This is someone that no one hearing this story would ever think was good. And the counterpart to the tax collector in Jesus' story was a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees get a bad rap among us, and justly so. But you've got to think. The community hearing Jesus' story exonerated Pharisees. Pharisees, to them, were a high religious example. Okay? They were someone with uh, squeaky clean piety. Right? In our day, they did their devotions every day. They went to morning prayer every day. Right? They gave what they were supposed to give every day. They were continually living according to the laws of the Jewish religious society. They were morally upright. They were probably very well educated. They too were more than likely pretty well off. They were well educated in Torah, Torah law. Many of them probably having the first five books of the Old Testament completely memorized. You know the small ones, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? Completely memorized. These guys were always on time at church. They always stayed after to clean up. They brought the biggest dishes to the potluck, right? They were honored among the religious community. And so Jesus intentionally chooses these two dramatically different individuals as he tells this story. And as a note, just before we read the parable once more, this parable is not about prayer. Last week's parable was about prayer. This week's parable isn't about prayer. Though Jesus uses the example of these men going to pray, this parable is not about prayer. This parable is actually revealing to Jesus' uh, listeners what it is that God values. Okay? What is it that God values? When we look at these two different people, we're going to be told what it is that God values. So let's read this, Luke 18, 9 through 14 again. We like to reread and reread and reread Scripture and let it wash over us. Uh, and then we'll jump in some more. So here we go, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up and into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your intentionality in the way that you tell us about the kingdom of heaven. We are grateful, God, that you have recorded for us through the hands of men inspired by your spirit the words of God so that we might see the truth of God and believe it and be welcomed into the kingdom of God based on the thing that God values. That is our humble cries for mercy. God, we know what is true about us. God, we've sunk of it this morning already. Um, maybe some of us are weighed down today by guilt and shame and, and uh, remembrances of our misconduct. God, we, we come from all different places this week, and I pray today that you would usher us into the relief that comes from knowing and believing the gospel, that you would bring us to a rest of soul that allows us to give up our self-righteous attempts to earn your and that you would free us to be people of grace, that we might not be those who look down on others with contempt, but rather are welcomed into the company of the host of heaven who opens arms to lost sinners when they find that Jesus loves them and accepts them by his grace and his grace alone. Lord, make us new people today. We need your gospel to, to wash over us and to cleanse us, not just from our sins, but from our filthy thoughts that are incorrectly evaluating ourselves and others. God, give us the mind of Christ today. Help us to see him, to know him, and to come to him. In his name, amen. So again and again, we see Jesus or Luke give away the meaning of parables. Right, and we need this because parables were told for two reasons. Number one, to reveal the kingdom, and, for, and number two, to, to hide the kingdom. Uh, for those who did not have ears to understand, they would hear a parable and, and believe Jesus was saying something that he wasn't and would go forward with a misinterpretation of what Jesus was said. This is why I said this parable is not about prayer. Uh, because with the wrong understanding and the Spirit not enlightening our hearts, we might come to this, prayer, this parable and say, oh, I've got to pray a certain way. The only way I'm going to be justified is if I pray a certain way. And that's not what Jesus is saying in this parable at all. And so we need to dig into this reality. And in particular, look at the first verse, which is basically the lead up to, to what this parable is even for. Why did Jesus tell the story of a tax collector and a Pharisee going up to temple to pray? He told it for this reason, verse 9 that some, or he told it to some, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so as we dig into this parable, we've got to ask the important question is, what kind of people are those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous? And I'm sorry, but immediately as we dig into this question, we've got to go right for the tough stuff and get some serious gut check from the Spirit of God and the Word of God as we evaluate our own life in light of this text to understand that we are some who trust in our own righteousness. We are. Okay? 
This isn't a past tense statement about people who, before they come to Jesus, they trust in their righteousness. This is a past tense, current tense, and future tense conversation about the proclivity of the human heart to trust in our own righteousness. And so I want to help you just with some simple questions that are a bit diagnostic to, to try to see what this might look like for us. What, what does it look like for me to trust in my righteousness? Well, I think that those who trust in righteousness, in their own righteousness, might have a life that is filled with exhausted and pressure-filled pursuit of perfect performance, right? A self that trusts in our own righteousness might be manifested in a life lived with an exhausted, pressure-filled pursuit of perfect performance. Now, the crazy thing about this is that it can be in any area of life. So often when we hear a parable of Jesus, we think Jesus is just talking about reading your Bible and praying every day and attending church and blah, right? And the gospel is far too vast for us to narrow down the application to just simply religious duties, right? Often, we see this trust in our own righteousness seep out into the rest of our life, right? You can have a pressure-filled, harried life that pursues perfect righteousness in the way that you keep your home. And that is a heart-revealed issue that you are trusting in your own righteousness. You can have this trust in your own righteousness when it comes to workaholism, you can have this trust in your own righteousness when it comes to parenting or external appearances like your beautification or your style or your fitness, where you are looking to make yourself significant before God and before others with your performance in any one of these areas. And it is particularly dangerous when it comes to religious practice. Now also, a life of one who might trust in themselves that they are righteous might be filled with constant worry and consideration and comparison when it comes to how I measure up with others. Listen, I don't need to vilify social media, but I need to talk about my heart. One of the worst things the Twitter and Instagram and what's that other book face, Facebook do to me is put me under the standard of the things that I see constantly scrolling before me. Okay? Confession. I had to stop following churches on Instagram because of my heart being dark and comparative and judging my own righteousness based on how my church measures up to the Instagram account of a church 10,000 miles away. That's probably really far away. 3,000 miles away. <laughs> right? Lord, help me. When you trust in your own righteousness, you fall under the weight of comparison. And Jesus wants to set you free. 
what else? Those who trust in themselves that they are righteous might have a particular expertise in what is proper rule keeping, right? With this innate ability to evaluate all of the behaviors and motivations of everyone else, right? We become experts in the do's and the do nots, in particular experts in those who fall short of our do's and who are doing our do nots. When we trust in our own righteousness, not only do we compare ourselves in how we fall short, but we also compare ourselves in how we accelerate, how we rise above. We see our righteousness as a throne from which to push down others. You see, when you live this kind of life, you have a need to be noticed. You have a need to be seen and to be affirmed in the good progress and in the proper behavior that you're living in. When you trust in your own righteousness, you need others to see it, right? And that is such a captivating and a, a confining reality. Two last things. One person who is trusting in their own righteousness would be one who can't rest. If you cannot enjoy true Sabbath where you can set down everything and just not do for an entire day, Ooh, right? I've been good lately at like 4.5 hours of Sabbath. Yeah, it's like 19 and a half hours shy of real Sabbath. <laughs> I'm doing great, Lord, right? When you trust in your righteousness, you have to keep doing. You can't stop. This, too, is a wearisome game. Finally, and this is probably the worst, is that we get defensive, right? When we trust in our righteousness, we get defensive against any accusation from any person or from any situation that might reveal us as sinful and falling short. No, 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 I didn't, I didn't. You misread my heart, brother. You didn't, God sees the heart. You, you missed what I was really, you know. We fend off any sort of attack on our righteousness, right? This is one of the most uh, significant contributors to our relational fracturing, okay? When we enter into relationship and we're carrying along and we're doing fine and we're enjoying one another, the moment when we confront or are confronted by the sin of another, the fracturing of relationship comes in. Well, you, you didn't see me right. You, you misread me. You don't understand me, right? Instead of saying, you're right, that was, that was, that was wicked. That was my sin nature coming through. And I'm sorry, sister and brother, you know, please have grace on me like the Lord has had grace on me. So it's essential as we consider this parable to ask the question, how do you think you will stand before God? What is, what is your footing before God? What is the thing that gives you the surety to stand before the eyes of him who sees everything, right? What is your basis for standing there? Because if when you picture yourself before God, your good works come to mind, 
like Jesus says of the Pharisee, you're in danger of being turned away. But if, when you picture yourself before God, your only hope of ever standing there and enduring before the just gaze of the perfect one is to fall down and plead the mercy of God like the tax collector, then you, friend, have begun to understand what God's grace is all about. You see, I think the word for some of these who were there listening, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, is that there's a weariness about you when you work to justify yourself. And Jesus wants to liberate you and bring you rest. Jesus wants to free us from the pressure of justifying ourselves with our own actions. And so I call to you to lay down your defenses. Set down your efforts of self-justification, right? Your wearisome work of proving yourself to God and come to embrace his lavish mercy toward you. God delights to give us grace and to liberate us from the labors of our self-righteous religion. Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus proclaims this boldly to those who would come to follow. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He says, come to me, all you self-righteous religious workers. Come over here. You're tired. You're weighed down. You're carrying these dramatic burdens, and they are killing you. You cannot rest. You cannot have relationships. You cannot see the world rightly because you think it's up to you. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke in Jesus' day was a following that you was a teaching that you had to follow in order to be a legitimate disciple of a rabbi. Okay? And in Jesus' day there were many rabbis teaching many yokes, and every one of the yokes said, Do it. Try harder. Be better, be cleaner, be neater, be holier. Do it. Get to church on time, you fools. Give your money and all of it. Don't you see that God needs you to be perfect? Again and again, the Jewish people would hear these teachings and they would submit to this heavy yoke. And Jesus said, my yoke is light. Why is Jesus' yoke light? Because he took it. My God demands perfect righteousness to stand in his sight. Don't lose sight of this. Jesus is not saying that you must be, he is not saying you don't have to be holy to stand before God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your only hope of standing before God is complete holiness and you can't do it yourself. Come. Come to the yoke bearer who was born a man, who faced all the pressures of perfect living and satisfied them, not only in deed but in heart, perfectly fulfilling the righteous requirements of a just and holy God so that you could be free.
to own your failure and to accept his grace. Take Jesus' yoke because he took yours. He took it. This is good news, but it is offensive to the self-righteous, to those who trust in their righteousness. You cannot, and you will not. And yet, Jesus says, come. Let me say these things as boldly and as clearly as I can. There is no deed that you can do that will make you worthy of God's love. There is no activity that you can involve yourself in that will earn you merit before your creator. There are no moral improvements that you can add to your life that will justify you before the Lord. There is not a single wrong behavior that you can eliminate from your life, that you can avoid and press out and get out so that your soul will be clean enough to be deserving of heaven. There is nothing that you can change about your mind and your heart and your attitude or your actions that will gain you entrance into the kingdom. God's acceptance of you into his family, his making you fit for his kingdom, his cleansing of your sin, his transfer of your mind from darkness to light, the gift of his love and the gift of his spirit, his granting you mercy and calling you his own is not based for even one second on what you have done or what you are doing or what you will do. Salvation is all of grace. Yesterday, today, forevermore. Always God justifying us, never us justifying ourselves. Galatians 2.16 is a clarion call from Paul to a church who had fallen prey to trying to go back and get their own righteousness after hearing the gospel. He says this, we know, Galatians 2.16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In case you miss it, he says the same thing three times. No one can be justified by the law. We are not justified by the law. The only justification comes through grace. You see, when we grasp how true this is, it changes everything about the way we look at the world. This parable, verse 9, is told about those who trusted in righteousness, trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. The second flows out of the first. The contempt that these people were looking down at others with flows from, it stems from, it is a, a, an overflow of abundance of a heart that trusts in self. Right? And so, this culture of self-righteousness establishes the feeling 
that you have to be a particular kind of person or do a particular type of thing in order to be treated as one of us. Otherwise, if you don't measure up according to our righteous standard that we think we are keeping because we are foolish, then you can't come in. That's where contempt comes from. Contempt toward others comes from the wrong view of how we stand before God. Right? And this is religiously an epidemic. It was in Jesus' day. It has been ever since Jesus' day. It is in our day. And until he comes back, it will be ever present among us so long as these roots of self-righteousness live inside of us. And so what does it look like to treat others with contempt? Because Luke says they trusted in themselves and they treated others with contempt. Well, contempt looks like disdain for others, maybe even a demonization of them because they don't look righteous like us, right? Treating others with contempt looks like gossip, Gossip stems from a heart that says, I measure up before God and they don't. And because I care so stinking much that a lot of people know that I measure up, I'm going to make sure that they also know that they don't measure up. That that category of person or that individual in particular or that family over there, they don't measure up. And so I'm going to spread the word about how they don't measure up because I'm concerned about them and I'm praying for them, right? Because they don't measure up. Somebody told me this week that gossip is natural and good and it is a lie. It is a sin to be repented of and to run from constantly. Treating others with contempt often means that we believe they deserve the bad things that come to their life because of the bad people that they are. That's contempt, and it's straight from the pit of hell. Contempt toward others might result in an inability to consider that someone may be a follower of Jesus so long as they have that hang-up. Right? They must not really believe in Jesus if they're still doing that thing. It's a dangerous place to be. Contempt of others may look like you have the perfect remedy for their pathetic life if they would just simply listen to you and get their act together. That's contempt toward others. This hurts. This hurts. One thing that's tough about this is that people are in all sorts of places in the lives that we interact with. And we can, in many different stages of their life, display contempt for them, okay? So I want to talk about three areas, and then we'll wrap up. Three stages of life where people might be treated with contempt in. Now, these stages are normal, right? And I just want to help illuminate how this self-righteousness can produce contempt for all kinds of people, okay? The three categories of people are unbelievers, seekers, and then followers of Jesus, okay? Unbelievers, seekers, and followers of Jesus, okay? I just said everybody. <laughs> That's the planet, okay? 
People that don't believe, they're doubtful or they're skeptical about faith, about Jesus, and they don't want anything to do with him. Okay? Seekers, I just call that people who are beginning to ask, beginning to consider, beginning to look. And then followers, I would call that redeemed, regenerate believers in Jesus. Okay? So we can treat people with contempt in every one of these categories. Okay? And here's what it looks like. For the unbeliever, this is a person who doesn't believe in Jesus. They don't believe that he's the son of God who died in their place on the cross to give them forgiveness of sins. Right? Often we view them with contempt because they don't do Christian things like us. Instead, they do sinner things. Okay? We just have this ill toward them, this chagrin. It just dismisses them as less than human because they do sinner things. Right? They don't do Christian things, which, number one, that's impossible when they don't have a new heart filled with the Spirit of God, so we need a theology correction, right? Also, we do sinner things, <laughs> right? So we need another evaluation of our own hearts there. We often treat folks who do not know Jesus with contempt because they aren't doing stuff right. And the contempt that we have for them stems from a misunderstanding of our perceived righteousness. We think this, I have been able to do such and such to get myself together, right? So they should. Why don't they just by themselves do the thing that Jesus said is impossible for a human to do? Why don't they just do it? I did it. You did what? Didn't do nothing without the help of God. Didn't do a thing without the awakening force of the power of the Spirit in your life. You didn't do a thing. Right? We have this abiding contempt of those who do not yet follow Jesus. And I'm afraid this contempt manifests in how willing we are to associate with people like this or how invested we are able to be with them in order to build a genuine relationship. Right? The contempt creates a divide that we cannot cross. And so we have to keep them at a safe distance. All the while, Jesus said, I am seeking and saving the lost. That's why I came to pursue, to go forward toward as close as possible to those who are outside. Right? So long as the contempt is there, we cannot and will not be ambassadors of the gospel for those who are far off. Second category, seekers. So these are those who claim or who are looking into the claims of Jesus. These are those who are possibly slowly, maybe even painfully slowly, considering following Jesus. Which actually, that's great. The scripture can, says, hey, before a king goes to war, he counts the cost. Right? Before society and a king builds a tower, they, they count the bricks. <laughs> like, like, consider. Amen? And so this is what, how I would put somebody in this category. We can view them with contempt because they are wrestling with doubts that we don't struggle with. Right? Or they're maybe wrecked by sins that we've long overcome. Or maybe they're beset with weaknesses that are different than the weaknesses that we have. 
We treat them with contempt because the process is taking so long. And the contempt that we have for them is based on a misunderstanding of what one must do to obtain justification before God. Right? We think this, I did this and that and so on and so forth. When I came to faith, why don't they do this and that and then just get it figured out? Right? We use our script, our story as the unbending script of how to come to Jesus. And we say, get with it, seeker. Just clean up. I mean, I, as soon as I confessed Jesus, I was in church every Sunday. I mean, what, you know? I mean, I, I used to sleep around, and then I started looking into Jesus, and I stopped, man, because I knew that was bad. I did really good. Seriously? Like, what are we doing? And this manifests itself in what we think these types of people need to hear in order to become a Christian. Right? We have our pre-programmed ideas of what they need to get right. Right? And often this leads us to, to addressing behavior before we ever address belief. Right? And so somebody explores the idea of maybe coming to Jesus and they're gay. Right? And I've had this conversation a million times with you as you're interacting with these kinds of people and with these folks who are wrestling through this stuff. And you're like, well, I gotta make sure they know I disagree with their lifestyle. No, you don't. I'm sorry, but no, you don't. You need to make sure that they understand that nothing can separate them from Jesus if they come to him in genuine faith. They need to understand the glorious truth that the creator of their soul has separated himself from the perfection of heaven to enter humanity so that he could show them that he's gracious toward them, that he loves them. You need to trust that the spirit of God is far more powerful than all of your arguments about the sins that they should set down. Right? We do this all the time. We do this with people coming from particular backgrounds. Right? Or under particular political persuasions. Or with different nationalistic tendencies. With contempt, we put fences up between them and God. And we say, I came to God like this, you better figure it out too. Like I did. We keep a safe distance from these seekers until we see some evidence. <laughs> I don't want to get too close, just in case they're not really right. Just like Jesus and the prostitute. He made sure she didn't get too close. Too many tears on my feet, ma'am. Excuse me, you're dirty. the damage that our self-righteousness can do. Finally, with followers, these are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by grace through faith are new life daughters and sons in the family of God. Often we can view even fellow believers with contempt because they don't do well the things that we think we do well. Or, and this is even more toxic, 
Because we all know everybody sins, right? Well, yeah, everybody sins. Everybody sins. Everybody struggles with those things, right? Our issue is not that everybody struggles. Our issue is always that people struggle differently than we do, right? Our issue is that people sin differently than we do. Yeah, yeah, I know they're all sinners. They shouldn't sin like that. Because I, I, I don't sin like that, right? I, I dealt with that. If they're real believers, they should. Deadly, deadly. This contempt that we have for them stems from, again, a distorted view of our standing before God. It stems from this belief that the fountain of our Christian maturity or our, our little stumbles toward obedience is self rather than God's grace. We think our goodness and our maturity and our growth is coming from us. <laughs> right? We think we've done it. We think we've attained it. We've blinded ourselves to the fact that it is only God who's done anything good. And that he is renewing and regenerating and changing us. And this contempt will manifest itself in wrong advice to other Christians. Again, probably mostly about the, their behavior than their belief. Right? This will manifest, manifest itself in a boasting of our good deeds. Right? In a proud propagating of how we've changed and how we've grown and how we're a good example. It will manifest in gossip about others. And it will even dull our acceptance of their genuine faith. It'll make us skeptics of whether someone believes in Jesus or not. Right? As if following Jesus gives license to be an inspector gadget on the hearts of all of others. Right? We trust in ourselves that we are righteous and we treat others with contempt. And in this passage, the people listening would have looked down upon tax collectors as those who could never, ever, so long as they live, deserve to enter God's kingdom. Right? So the question is, who's that for you? Who's the tax collector in your life? Is it a family member? Probably. Thanks, Thanksgiving. Right? Is there a type of person, a, a personality, category, a color of skin, a, a nationality or background? Is there a political persuasion involved there? Those kind of people, right? Is there a young believer even here in our midst that you would look down on like this or a seeker and doubter? Or an entire section of society, an entire swath of people that you can just single-handedly dismiss with one phrase. Oh, those blank. And write them all off. Because they are not attaining to the righteousness that you think you're attaining to. Right? Listen, until you see yourself as on the same level as that person, the one that just came to your heart when I said, who's your tax collector? Until you see yourself Currently, right now, at the same place as them, you will not understand the grace of God. The mistake of us Christians is to say, I was once like them. I was once like them. Jesus says the one who walked away justified is the one who begged God for mercy. Begged God for mercy. 
So I admonish you and beg you and employ my own heart. Fall on his mercy. Fall on his mercy. You see, the Pharisee had values. He had good deeds, right? When looked upon by his community, he was worthy of respect. And Jesus isn't attacking that here. He's not attacking some good things. He's not attacking that we might have some obediences in our hearts. He's not attacking that we would pursue faithfully following him. He's declaring boldly and clearly that these things contain no merit whatsoever. That even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags as Isaiah declared. Your deeds do not make you right before God. The tax collector relied not on the merits of works. He had no confidence in the things he had done. In fact, like Paul in Philippians 3, he considered them rubbish. That's why he looked down. He didn't even think he could look up at God. He felt so unworthy, so undeserving, yet he is the one who walked away justified in the parable. He went home with the smile of heaven. Why? Because he had no other ground other than the mercy of God to stand on. That's all he had. And that's why Jesus repeats a sentence that he had said a couple of chapters ago, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's Luke 18, 14. And so we must see God's offer of grace as too good to be true. It's too good to be true. Can it be so? Can it really be so that I can be called a child of God in a way that has nothing to do with my actions? Is that really true? Is it truly possible that right now, at this very moment, knowing what I struggled with last week, knowing those words that came out of my dark heart at that table on Thursday, knowing the judgments that I spoke after the family was gone and it was safe to talk again, knowing that those things are so close to my experience, they just happened. That's what's true about me, but preacher, you're telling me that even though that's my experience, the reality about me is that I belong to God? That he, without hesitation, calls me his? That he boldly walks into that room and embraces me? How can it be that I don't have to work for this? How can it be that I don't have to tidy up? How can it be that even though I've struggled with this area of sin for 12 excruciating years, how can it be that I am his? This is too good to be true. This is the gospel. This parable is a call to everyone to come and taste free grace. 
The fountain is overflowing. You need not do gymnastics or earn a degree or attain to a righteousness. You must only beg for mercy that you know you don't deserve but has been given to you anyway. Because Christ has done all of the work. Listen, friends, if we can be a people who know this grace, the power of God can erase contempt from our community and open the doors for everyone who's been hurt by the self-righteousness of American religion to everyone that's been ruined by the ostracization of a family who says they follow God to everyone who's been told they've got to get it right or clean it up or fix it and get straight before they can meet Jesus. We can be a place of welcome for them. Because we walk in here not to perform, right? But to pursue mercy. This is our one hope. That God would have mercy on us now and transform us into people who would lose contempt for others and open an embrace with the call of the gospel. All who can come. Amen. Jesus, help us. We need you. We can't do it. We fall short. We'll probably mess this up today. <laughs> but that's why your grace is so precious. That's why your mercy is so abundant. We must fall on it every day. We must come to the place of prayer and say to ourselves, not the words of the Pharisee, but the words of the tax collector, God, have mercy on my soul. Have mercy on my soul. I've walked with you for this many months or this many years or maybe this many decades. God, would you have mercy on my soul? Would you heal my dark heart that wants to exclude others? Would you bring me into the likeness of Jesus who wants to pursue sinners and give grace abundant? Lord, make Stonehouse Church a church of welcome for the doubter and skeptic, for the confused seeker, in this world of many religious messages and to, to the follower of Jesus who still feels such a struggle in the inside, wondering why they can't get it right, wondering why they keep needing grace. God, liberate us to understand that's all of us so that we might rejoice in what you've given, so that we might sing songs because you've been good so that we might offer our lives in response because you've continually pursued us with grace. Our standing before you, God, is all grace. It's all grace because of Jesus. In his name we pray today. Amen.